Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to study your word. pray you would open our eyes uh, to behold wonderful things in your word. Lord, we want to see Jesus. That's what we're here for. Um, God, we're not here to, to, to have a, a pep talk or to feel better about ourselves or whatever it may be. Lord, we're here to see Jesus. We're here to worship him, be changed in light of him, and walk out of here being like him. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the uh, underlying problems uh, in the culture and in the, honestly in the church for that matter today is, is what I'll call passivity. Passivity is especially true of men. And men, you may not like uh, the fact that, uh, that God has called each of you this way, but God has called you specifically as men to step up, to lead, and be responsible. The propensity um, is to take the back seat, not lead as God has designed men to do. In the Bible, you don't have to go very much, very far into the Bible. Just get to chapter 3, and you find it immediately. The Adam's silence is deafening there in chapter 3. It's a familiar story maybe to you. When, I, when Eve is tempted by Satan, the serpent, and the, the eats of the fruit, and all of that uh, story, you'll find in that story that Adam is present. He's present. He doesn't say a thing. He just stands back passively in the shadows just watching this whole thing take place. And then you consider pop culture, consider what is, what is portrayed today. Is you can just cue about any series of shows and see kind of ad nauseum the passive male uh, who is the ongoing brunt of jokes uh, in our culture. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, we have arrogant, hot-headed men um, all over the culture. You don't have to go much further than the presidential debate that just happened. You also see men like this all over the Bible. You see Uzziah, you see Pilate, you see Cain, all of these. And what I love about Scripture is that Scripture doesn't actually give us a hero, all right? There's no man, despite what maybe, you know, your old Sunday school felt board lessons may have taught you. There are no heroes in the Bible outside of the person of Jesus Christ, right? The God-man Jesus Christ. He is the hero, right? All the others fail. All the others don't really model for us what and who we are to be. And I love that about Jesus as we study him. He was, he was neither arrogant nor was he passive, right? And we see that throughout the study of that. Just consider God's response to us as people. When we sinned, right, there's a lot of things that could have happened that didn't. God could have shunned us in anger. He could have disowned us in disappointment. He could have even remade all of creation. Said, you know what, I'm going to scrap this whole thing and we're going to start over. Could have done that. But instead... We find on every page of Scripture God's pursuit of us. Uh, we find that God comes after us. We find that God loves us enough to not be passive, to not be still. We find a God that doesn't sit back and wait for us to come to him because truth of the matter is, as was read earlier by Steve, Pastor Steve here, we're not coming to him, okay? He comes after us. He sends his son to live among us, to die for us. And this is what we call in the Bible the mission of God, the mission of God. And it's almost like the accelerator of the Bible. It moves it forward. From page one all the way to the very end, we find that God who is on mission to come after us. And as a result of that, once Jesus ascended in the Gospels and we get to the book of Acts, we find that God then turns around and sends his people, we now call the church uh, to, to move and take that mission forward by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus would say, John 17, 18, is one of his prayers to the Father. He said, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you, right? You're, you're, you saw me, you saw how, how I was sent, how I was on mission, now you go do the same. And thus the church exists, guys, because a mission exists, okay? The church is not a country club. <laughs> it's not a place just to come and kind of hang out and feel better about ourselves. It, the church exists. When I say church, I'm not talking about the building. The church, the people of God exists because there is a mission that exists, we're to move out as a collectively, using our gifts, using our talents, our interests to infiltrate the culture, to be active and pursue, not be passive and indifferent and still, okay? We're to model like God to, to move. Another way of looking at this, you could, another way of saying this, is you could say we're on a mission of intervention, like Jesus was. He intervened for us, didn't he? He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He came after us, he intervened. He loved us enough to, as it were, to step into our kitchens and shake things up in our life, turn the lights on, right? There's a, there's a show uh, called Intervention. You may have seen this before. I was shocked to find that it's in its 21st season. I think I've been watching that since season one, I believe. And it was like, it, it's a show. If you don't know what the show is, the premise is, uh, behind it is family and friends who are down to their kind of last hope with a loved one, right? They are, they're, the loved one's caught in some kind of addiction, and they are trying everything they can to get them out of the situation. And so what they do is they bring in a, what's called an interventionist. And they stage a meeting. The interventionist sits in with them and tries to help persuade with the family and friends to persuade this person to go get help, to go to rehab, right, to, to seek help. And so that's kind of the premise of the show and what's happening there. And so they intervene, right? They, even though it's hard, even though those meetings are really difficult, they love them enough to intervene. They love them enough to step in, and even though it's uncomfortable. So think of the mission, mission that God has put us on as a kind of intervention for the sake of others. And that's what we see in Jesus. He, in our text today, is like an interventionist. He cares enough uh, to step into the lives of a, of a broken man with his friends. We'll see that. A hated man that no one liked. And a group of rejected people that everyone in society didn't like. All these folks that were just read earlier, they all what we would call marginalized people. They were pushed. They weren't mainstream. They were marginalized, pushed to the edge of society, unacceptable by most people. They were like the leper that we saw earlier in Matthew uh, that most thought shouldn't even be given the time of day. And they all needed intervention, just like each of us do. And we find Jesus do his intervention work. I love this. Uh, many different places in this text. He does it on the, on the city streets. He does it as a, at, at a business at work. He does it at a house party. Right? He can meet anyone, anywhere, anytime. And so as we go through these stories, I want you to note the different types of intervention that Jesus used. And he uses them today, right? just as he did then. It's important for us to know that so that as we move out as a people of God, that we can model and see how Jesus did it as well to be on mission like him. He uses three things we'll look at. The friendship intervention, divine intervention, and then what I'll call church intervention. Okay, number one, friendship intervention. Uh, first eight verses here, starting at verse one, uh, it says, get into a boat. He, Jesus, crossed over, came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, we have seen Jesus heal a leper. We have seen Jesus stop a storm instantly, right, with a shh. <laughs> And it just goes, goes still. We've seen Jesus cast out demons. We saw that last week. And now we're going to see him at work again in a kind of crowded um, church service in the city. 
Okay, it's kind of what's going on. The other gospels tell us that this is this is a house. So, so we're gonna we're gonna take this is Matthew's gospel. There's also another one called Mark, uh, which is a kind of another way of looking at the stories. We got another one called Luke, another one called John. Right, there are four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, and so we're, I'm gonna take kind of each of them and merge them together so you get the whole kind of uh, view of the story. So the other gospels tell us it's a house. Right, Jesus is inside of a house. And it's jam-packed. I mean, this place is just packed with people. There's lines outside. There's, you imagine people kind of like, uh, if it had windows, kind of peeping through the windows, trying to see what's going on inside. There's no room at all inside this place. And on the other side of town, as it were, there is a group of friends. There's five of them, we find out, five of them total. And one of them is permanently unable to walk. And being in a culture at this time without wheelchairs, this guy is bound for life to basically sit on a mat. Um, but he has friends. And what we can surmise from the story, he has some, some good friends, some friends that love him, friends that care about him, who, pay, who are picking him up on a mat and carry him around town, right, as if he were royalty on their shoulders, kind of carrying him around as they go. They were good friends. I imagine they, they probably had good times, right, together. I just imagine kind of humanizing these folks in the story. I imagine the paralytic maybe at times, you know, as they got him up on the shoulders, carrying him around, you know, he's kind of joking around with them, like giving them kind of the royalty treatment. It's like, you can let me down now, you know, and then down they go. And maybe sometimes the friends kind of tip it, you know, drop him over just as a joke and see him laughing. These are good friends. Like, they love each other. They care about each other. They joke around with each other. Um, but, but there's also a, a sense of seriousness, right, about the situation, they have a friend who just can't walk, um, and, and they, they, yet they stick with him. Uh, they don't abandon him, right? They still walk with him through adversity. Proverbs 17, 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity, okay? So, so even though there's adversity, these friends love, and they continue to love. Even through the adversity, it's what's happening. But as fun as it was as friends, again, there was still pain. Both the, the paralytic and his friends knew that life would be so much better if he, could, if he could walk, right? But they held out little hope of that ever happening um, until they heard about a new guy in town. <laughs> the rumors had begun to spread. They heard about this guy, the one that stilled the storm, right? The one that cast out demons, the one that, that healed a leper. Wow, if he could do that, maybe, maybe, maybe he could do something for our friend. And so the words traveled fast, and Jesus Fame had spread like California wildfires, you know, and it kind of moved all over the place, and it's everywhere, and they, they've heard about him, and so they go. And so these friends decide to, to go to this house church kind of service going on where Jesus is, and as they approach the place, again, it's jam-packed. And they decide um, that, that as, they, as they get there, they can't get in, so they decide there's a, kind of find a, have to find a way to get inside the house, Maybe they thought about carrying him on their shoulders across the crowd, but the crowd was so packed that no one could kind of get through. Maybe they thought about climbing a tree and doing like the Zacchaeus thing and kind of waving at Jesus or something to get his attention. But what they do, according to the other Gospels, is they resort to climbing on the roof. Okay? That had to be quite an ordeal because obviously one can't climb. And so they have to carry him on their shoulders, get on top of the roof of this house. And so the other Gospel accounts tell us that as they're up there on top of the roof, they begin to do kind of an odd thing. They begin to peel away the pieces of the roof, they begin to tear it apart. You can imagine their fingers getting raw, maybe blood starting to come from the, their fingertips as they're kind of peeling away the pieces to look down and see Jesus at top of the roof, right? This is what they're doing. They would stop at nothing uh, to, see, uh, to see Jesus and bring their friend 
to Jesus. And what they do is they, can, they make some kind of contraption where they lower him down with a rope and drop him just right in front of Jesus. <laughs> so you imagine, the, imagine being down there in the crowd, right? You're down, all of a sudden you can hear scratching, clawing, something up on top of the roof, you know? And uh, you look up and you start to see daylight and you see these four guys' heads kind of peeping through a hole down, down the bottom with, with Jesus. And all of a sudden they, they just like, hold on a second and whew, down comes this guy. So this guy's just dropped in front of Jesus uh, in the story. Verse 2 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, none of the gospels, including this one, record either the man okay, or his friends asking for healing. There's no request for this. Not a word is recorded. The, the plight of the man um, and what the, friends, uh, what the friends looked for from Jesus were, were obvious enough without words. And it seems by Jesus' statement on forgiveness at first, if you're just first reading this thinking, okay, Jesus, I think you missed the point. Uh, we didn't come for forgiveness, right? We, we dropped him here, obviously, because he needs, he needs to be healed, right? Maybe Jesus is missing the point here. It's like the mailman bringing you a pizza. You're like, that's not what I ordered, right? I mean, this is not what I... Going to a restaurant, you get a set of Nike shoes delivered to you at your table. You're like, eh, it's not what I'm here for, right? Jesus, he maybe misses the point to them. But Jesus knew, he knew they wanted physical healing for their friend, but he wanted to give a, a greater gift, forgiveness of sin. And Jesus was saying, in essence, by his response, basically saying, by coming to me for your body to be healed only, you haven't, you haven't gone deep enough, right? You haven't gone deep enough. You haven't, you haven't, you've underestimated the depths of your longings here, uh, the longings of your heart. To heal only his body and not his soul would ultimately not be loving of Jesus. Because a few months after this ordeal would happen, no doubt the, eventually the euphoria of being healed would wear off. He'd still have a void in his soul. He'd still have the, the weight of guilt being carried around by him. Cynthia uh, Heimel, a writer uh, who's not a believer by any stretch of the beans, imagination, made the uh, following comment. I love this. This comment about um, the struggle of people in the entertainment industry. I used to work in that industry as a pastor and be in Hollywood and uh, always kind of went to this quote to help people understand, like, here's someone just making an observation about the culture and about the need of mankind um, and the need of the heart. She said this. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They, they worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. And they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. That's a great observation, right? That thing, whatever it is, put us aside the celebrity thing, whatever that thing is for you, like to get it, ultimately get it, you still feel the void, right? You, there may be a euphoria and excitement at first, but you lose, you lose it because you haven't addressed what's underneath, right? You haven't addressed the deep need of the soul. My friends, the deepest need of all your perceived needs is ultimately forgiveness from God and a relationship with Jesus. That is the ultimate need. And the fact that Jesus offers forgiveness here tells us that Jesus' primary purpose in coming is to save the lost. The story tells us that the root problem of the human race is sin, not, not sickness. 
right? Sickness and disease and deformity are all symptoms, okay, of, of that. Um, they're symptoms of the real disease of the soul. They are, they are something Jesus cares deeply about. They are something that ultimately, if you keep reading the Bible to the end, that Jesus will do away with permanently. We've talked about how the miracles in many ways foreshadow what's going to happen in the future where there'll be no more death and disease and brokenness, right? So he cares deeply about those things. It's just not the deepest thing, not the core problem. So Jesus didn't come to ignore sin or treat it lightly. But honestly, as you read the story, to violently kill sin. He pronounced forgiveness for this paralytic. And you can imagine in the story um, as he does this, kind of the gasps in the crowd. Like, who, who does he think he is? You know, kind of thing. You can hear the religious leaders get upset, right? They start to sigh. They start to grumble. And you realize that this man had, had, um, had done nothing to Jesus to has, have him forgive him. Okay? So think about that for a second. It, it wasn't like Jesus had a run-in with the paralytic like last week. And, you know, got offended or something. This guy did something to offend Jesus, sin against Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I forgive you for that incident. Right? There's nothing like that. Jesus just says, you're forgiven. You're like, who has the authority to do that, right? Uh, if, you, if you've had little ones or have little ones, we, we remember when ours were little, we, had, we have four now. They're all, all basically teenagers at this point. But when they were little, uh, you know, you're just part of it is, is training, training them. And part of teaching them was to teach them to, to use the words and ask for forgiveness, right? It's, it's kind of hard to do. And, uh, and what would happen was they'd have a situation where, you know, one would, I don't know, steal a toy from the other one, right? And they'd get upset and the thing would happen. And so we would have them face each other and look at each other in the eye and, and you know, say something along the lines of, you know, I'm sorry, I've, I've sinned against you, please forgive me, which usually was, I saw we, please forgive me. Something like that's what it usually sounded like. And so, you know, and the other sibling, maybe not genuine, but hey, we're training here, had to turn around and look at them and go, oh, I forgive you. Okay, I forgive you. And we'd make them hug it out, right? I mean, force them, like push them together, hug, and they're like, oh, you know, hug. But, you know, you're, you're training them, right? Why? It, it would be unheard of for me as a parent to walk into that kind of situation, toys stolen, and go, I forgive you. They're like, well, they, they didn't offend me. They offended each other. I don't, I don't have the authority to come into a situation like that and offer forgiveness for a situation that I'm not personally involved in. So you see the audacity of Jesus' statement. Why, the, as we'll see in a second, the religious leaders got so upset because he walked into a situation that had nothing to do with him personally and goes, I forgive you. <laughs> he's claiming to be God here, right? This is exactly what he's claiming to be. And so the religious leaders, they got upset. Look at verse 3. Scribes, scribes said to themselves, these were kind of part of that group of kind of religious leaders, said, this man is blaspheming. That's why they said that. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, okay, he's God, <laughs> said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. <laughs> Notice, uh, I love Jesus doesn't get angry. He simply says, just ask a simple question, which is easier to do. Just say the words forgive? That's pretty easy, right? You can just forgive. Anyone can say the words. Or is it, is it, is it harder to, to make a person healed, get up and walk? Right? The point that Jesus is making is that one cannot tell if someone is forgiven. Right? They, don't, they don't get like a, a stamp 
you know, a ribbon. It says, God gives them, forgiven, here you go. You can carry that around like I voted sticker or something. Like, I'm forgiven sticker, right? God doesn't give you one of those. There's no, no affirmation from the outside that that has happened. So Jesus could just be saying words. But Jesus says, just so you know I can do that, hey, why don't you get up and take that mat and go home? Boom, guy stands up, gets up, walks out, and goes, you see what I'm saying? Right? <laughs> and so this man gets forgiveness and healing. He gets both by Jesus. Probably more than anything the friends probably expected at this moment. Now look back at your Bible. Look back at verse 2. This is a very important point to be made. Notice what Jesus uh, saw to grant forgiveness. He saw faith, right? He saw faith. But curiously in the language, it wasn't the paralytic's faith. It was actually he addresses the friend's faith, right? Uh, which is interesting. He looks up. He sees the friends up in the roof. He looks down, pronounces forgiveness to the paralytic in light of their faith and looks down. That's a, a very strange, interesting way of looking at it. Now, it wasn't that their faith saved their friend. It's not like you can save anybody uh, through your faith or your actions. But we conclude from the text that obviously the faith of the friends, and the paralytic had faith as well, but the faith of the friends had a huge impact upon this man, right? Had a huge impact. And, and friends do have a profound impact upon a person's soul. That's why I call this kind of friendship intervention, right? The friends brought him to Jesus. Um, and we build relationships with people because as Christians, we care about people. Um, and when we really care about people, really love people, we strive to find a way, as these guys did, to take them to Jesus, even through the obstacles, even through the difficulty, even through tearing the roof open if we have to kind of thing. Uh, John Piper, the pastor in uh, Minnesota, he said this, he said, love is helping people toward the greatest beauty, the highest value, the deepest satisfaction, the most lasting joy, the biggest reward, the most wonderful friendship, the most overwhelming worship. Love, therefore, he says, is helping people towards God, because he is the source of all those things. Some of you have friends that you, you need to bring to Jesus, right? You need to bring them, whether that be bringing them to church, whether that means hanging out with other friends who know Jesus together, whether that means reading the Bible together with them, answering whatever questions, taking them out to coffee. Like, you just need to step up into that place and begin to intervene in that way. You need to stop letting little things get in the way, right? Um, give people the opportunity to say no in that way. Invite them to meet Jesus. Pick up the mat, as it were, and, and carry them, right? Some of you um, have friends... Um, help, you need to help have other friends, other people in the church help you carry the mat, right? This is four friends helping one person, right? Maybe that's the case, finding other people to help. Um, others of you need to, make, need to make new friends because if you're honest with yourself this morning, maybe this is a means of self-evaluation here, but uh, if you're honest with yourself, you don't even have anybody that, around you that you know who doesn't know Christ. You don't even have them. Um, it's kind of hard to be on mission for Jesus. If we just talked about at the beginning, if this is the mission, this is what we're here for, you don't have anybody around you that doesn't know Christ. It's kind of hard to be on mission, to do intervention when you don't know anybody. So you say, how does that work? It's not that hard. Find something you enjoy doing to meet people, right? Serve together in the park if you need to. Go, go serve in the storehouse together. Find another organization to serve together. Find something to do in that way. Be more present at your job or present in your neighborhood. Um, I, I've told you before, I, I joined a bowling league. Right? I like bowling. I know it, it makes me look weird probably, but that's okay. I've got purple shoes on, so I already passed the weird part here. So um, and, and people are like, what does he got? They're purple. See it right there. Um, Eddie's already made fun of me in the back there. So 
uh, but I bowl too, so hey, whatever. Um, I'm my own person. And so, but I joined the bowling league, and so I did, and I've, I'm really loving it. And I got a friend named Don, and Don, if you're watching, hi, on the screen there, um, on the TV. He says I pop up on his Facebook page occasionally, and I'm like, okay. Um, but I, I mean, I bowl with Don. Don and I are becoming friends. We're going to go take our families. We're going to go hiking in, a, in a, about two weeks here, right? He's going to, Drew and I are going to go over and, and eat dinner at his house and hopefully not die from hot sauce. Um, he, he told us we're, we're having a hot sauce challenge. He's going to cook like hot wings for the youth group like on a, on a, on a, on a night this, this month and we're going to have a hot sauce challenge and see how hot of, of wings can you eat. And so we're going to go test and make sure if we die, we, 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 then we can't do it. Because he told us, he told Drew and I, he goes, uh, some of these I've tasted before that uh, I go deaf for about 30 seconds. I'm going, eh, I don't want to try those. <laughs> I don't want to try those. But nonetheless, I mean, we're, I'm, like, I'm bringing Drew with me, right? I'm bringing my family with me on a hike. Like, we're, we're finding ways to kind of join together and, and impact, you know, impact his life and try to see him come to Christ, right? That's, that's what we're about. So be interested in people. Find something that you like to do. Join up with somebody who doesn't know Christ and begin to build those friendships, those relationships for the sake of the gospel. Number two, divine intervention. Sometimes Jesus bypasses us, <laughs> okay? Some of you... Pretty much like myself, can almost can go like, yeah, um, God just kind of got me. Didn't really use anybody else. He just went after me and brought me to himself without any use of other people. And this is what we find here. Look at verse 9. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax booth. Now, that may be familiar. This book is called Matthew. It's actually the same guy. Okay, so the guy who wrote the book is actually telling his own story here. He sat in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Okay, so here we find... Um, this, uh, you know, God kind of intervening himself, Jesus doing this himself. He's, um, some of you could testify to, you know, just, just reading the Bible, God brought you to, to himself. And, you know, just maybe sitting on a, on a hillside watching the sunset and, or sitting by the beach and just being overwhelmed by that. And God just using those kind of means to start drawing you to him. And this is what Jesus does with Matthew here. And Matthew didn't see it coming, okay? He didn't see it coming. He was a tax collector, and Jesus met him, not at church, okay, not a church service or temple or synagogue or whatever. Didn't meet him there. He met him on the street. Matter of fact, he met him at his job. Jesus went to his job and met him there. And as a tax collector, understand this. And you may know this, you may not, but let me help you understand this if you don't. He was an outcast, okay? He was not liked. And you can just hear it, right? As someone who tech collects taxes, you're like, yeah, I don't see how that person's pretty much, he's not very popular, right? This guy was really hated, though. Um, he was uh, seen an outcast to his own people. He was Jewish, taking, collecting taxes from Jewish people for the sake of Rome. Okay? They really didn't like him. He was politically, religiously, and socially unacceptable acceptable to people. He was a sellout to them. And at the time Jesus was born, in this culture right here, Israel had been under Roman domination for about 60 years. Okay? They'd been ruled by them with like an iron fist. It wasn't, it wasn't nice. And one of the worst aspects of Roman oppression, there were lots of them, but one of the worst ones was the whole tax system. So if you're ready for this one, don't turn me off and go to sleep. I'm going to talk about taxes for a moment, all right? Um, just, just stick with me. It is important. It'll make sense, okay? Roman taxes, all right? The worst aspect was Roman taxes. There were two basic taxes, okay? There was a toll tax, which was comparable to kind of um, our moderate kind of income tax. And then there was a ground tax. It's kind of like our property tax, okay? So some similarities with the Roman system in our, in our culture. But it got a lot more intense, a lot more intense for them. Here's how it would work. A Roman senator... Would, uh, would buy from the, the central government, from the Roman government, at public auction, the right to collect taxes, okay? So he would, he would buy that right. 
Whatever was collected above, he could collect whatever he wanted. He had to return whatever Rome requested, and then he could charge an extra, which he would usually do, an extra 20% on top of that. He would then turn around and hire what were called publicans. Not republicans, okay, but publicans. You'll see them sometimes in the Bible. You're like, is that a republican? No, it's not a republican. No, it's not them. Totally different. Um, But they were called publicans. They would get closer to the area that Rome was dominating over, and they would charge an extra 20% to collect taxes as well. But they didn't want to get their hands dirty, so they would, call, they would hire tax collectors who were on the bottom, of it, as it were, who actually were on the street collecting the taxes. And they would charge an extra 20%. So you're talking 60% extra on top of whatever Rome is requesting. So you, you get the idea. I mean, it's like way over half your income is going in taxes. So all of that hatred about that system went right to the guy on the street, right? The tax collector. He's out there doing his thing. And that's why they didn't like him at all. And you had to pay because there's nothing you could do about it, right? You had the, they had the full authority of Rome backing them and soldiers around them, so you had to pay your money. And so the tax collectors were hated by their own people, not only as extortioners but as traitors. They were like an IRS agent, TS agent, customs officer, all wrapped up in one job here, okay? They just didn't really like them at all. And in Israel, they were ranked with the lowest of society. Matter of fact, if you read the Gospels and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every time you see a tax collector... That listed, they're always listed with tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> you're like, I think that's everybody, isn't it? Yeah, that's everybody. But that was a label they really wanted to throw on people, and the tax collectors were right there with them, right? Tax collectors, sinners. Um, and so that's what they would do. They're always collected. They're always in that, in that group. As a result, they were not very religious because they couldn't be. They weren't allowed in synagogues. They weren't allowed the temple, right? They couldn't hear the Bible read because there was no, they didn't have these floating around, okay? There was one scroll, as it were, in the temple or one scroll at the synagogue. So they, they couldn't even hear it. There was no means of hearing it. There's no audio recordings, no podcast back then, okay? They had no way of actually hearing the word of God. So when we meet Matthew in the story now, okay, now you get that idea. I'll stop talking about taxes for a second. Um, we meet Matthew, he's sitting in his tax booth, okay? I imagine it's something like, um, you know, he's, he's like a toll booth guy almost. You drive through a toll booth, that's what I imagine him kind of sitting in his little booth. And uh, he's there, he's on the outskirts of Capernaum, and I don't know, he's like collecting, he's got, he's got so much money. I just imagine for whatever reason, Scrooge McDuck, you know, the one who dove through all of his coins. You remember, you remember Scrooge McDuck? That dates me a little bit, I think. Um, so, you know, he's, he's just collecting, loving all of his coins, counting all of his money, and, uh, and you can imagine he's almost got like a line of people going through. And as he's there, he doesn't even make eye contact with people, right? He's just blurting out the cost, hand out, hands them money, you know, and people just continue just to file by one after one after one, stashes his money away, extends his arm for the next person. When all of a sudden he puts his arm out to collect taxes and gives the amount, and no, the, the guy doesn't pay him. <laughs> it's like, hold on a second. Why aren't you paying your taxes, right? And so, so, this, so this guy doesn't, doesn't pay him, and Matthew looks up. No doubt he's probably a little perturbed at first, makes eye contact with Jesus. He doesn't know who he is. Blood pressure maybe starts to go up. You can see some Roman soldiers maybe starting to walk over to kind of enforce the rules uh, in this situation. And as they do, something strange happens to Matthew because the text just, just gives us the fact of the matter of what happened. Something strange happened to him. He was like a, like a deer in the headlights. He was, like, he was locked. And he was staring at Jesus. And something about this man, something unique, something different, something other was going on. And so... The text just tells us that Jesus just looks him straight in the eye. I would love to have been there to see this scene, right? Just looks him straight in the eye. The crowd, you know, lines of people lined up for taxes. And he looks at him and says, you follow me. You know what Matthew does? Drops all of his coins, gets up, 
follows Jesus, leaves his job, leaves everything behind. I imagine the disciples are like, hey, can we, can we collect some of those and take them with us? You know, we, we, could, we, we could use a hotel. We're, we're tired of sleeping underneath the stars, right? So, but they're all there. They're watching the scene, too. The other gospels tell us that the, they're there, too. And so they're, they're looking at this. This is, this is unheard of. The crowd is, is unheard of to see something like this. It's startling. Why? Because not only had a tax collector left his lucrative job, that would be a crazy thing to leave because it was very lucrative, he also left behind all of his money. He left it everything. And a Jewish man, a rabbi, a teacher to, to the people, called, loved, and accepted a tax collector. I'm like, what is going on in this place? Right? This doesn't make any sense. And Jesus called Matthew. I love this. He, he had no choice. The text just says he called him, he obeyed. Right? He responded. It's like he was uh, locked in a trance or something. And we call this in theology, we call it the effectual call of God in theology. It's a, it's a call you cannot refuse. There are general calls of God that go out throughout the world to call people to, to God but that can be turned away. But this is an effectual call that gets answered every single time. When God draws you in and is determined to do so, you get drawn in. Romans 8, 28, um, maybe a verse you may be familiar with, says, We know that for those who love God... All things work together for good to, for those who are called according to his purpose. They've been drawn in, right? John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Uh, Book of Proverbs, we've been looking at this month, uh, 16.1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Right? He's, he's in control. Proverbs 20.24, a man's steps are from the Lord, then who can understand his way? God's in control of all of that. The call of Jesus means that you're no longer in control. Jesus is, and you know what? And what happens is you're fine with that. It's a call that's irresistible because you can't get Jesus off the brain. It's a call to adventure uh, that finds you instead of you finding it. It's a call not where you take up religion or take up morals or take up attendance. It's a call that you're taken up by, by God himself. It brings hope, right? This whole idea that God can do this brings hope to us if you have people, friends, family, children, parents, whatever, that don't know Christ, that you realize that God can call anyone, anytime, anywhere like that. He can do it. No one's beyond hope. No one's beyond the reach of Jesus, as we find this story. If he can reach a tax collector, whoever that person is on your mind, he can reach them too. Lastly, number three, church intervention, I'll call this. So we see Jesus use different means here. He's used... Uh, friendship, uh, intervention thing. He's intervened himself. And lastly, we see God use his people. Uh, look at verse 10. Jesus reclined at the table <clears throat> in the house. Behold me, tax collectors and sinners, there's that group, uh, came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this. They said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I love this text. Because it merely shows the effect of the gospel in the life of a person. This is Matthew, right? Matthew's life. Um, we just saw him leaving everything behind and following Jesus, whom he had never apparently even met. And there was just something about him. The call, again, was irrefutable. But as they got into town that night, Matthew's desire is not just for himself now. He realizes the change has happened in his life. He looks at all of his friends and goes, hey, I got a party tonight. Come on over. And I'm going to bring Jesus, and I'm going to bring his friends too. <laughs> and so you got the, I would just love to have been there, right? A fly on the wall. You got the, all the tax collector Friends, who no one liked, they were like the only friends they had was each other, and sinners, whatever that category was, right? That was the, that was the word used to kind of describe anybody that's non-religious kind of person, right? They were way out there. That's a house party, right? So we got the rejects of society, everyone no one wants to be around, and you got Jesus and his disciples, and they're all there. Matthew kind of brings them all together, right? Brings them all together. 
He's connecting his friends with the family of God. And here we find in the text the religious people again. They are, they are triggered. They are upset. They are mad, uh, which is not, not unusual in the Gospels. We see this a lot. It's always, uh, it's always, they always seem to be mad at something, like they're taking shots of lemon juice or something all the time and just kind of just, just look upset all the time. You see, why are they so mad at Jesus and his disciples for eating with these guys? Hey, that's a good thing, isn't it? Like, why do they get upset at this kind of thing? Because in that culture, they, they saw people like these kind of spreading spiritual diseases, okay? Like, you're going you're gonna to catch something bad around these people. Um, if you got close to them, you become unclean. And uh, they saw Jesus as a sorry excuse of a Messiah by getting close to these kind of people. They, they thought Jesus could be, should be like in a hazmat suit or something right around these people. Like, just keep your distance, stay away, don't get too close. I know they need to hear you, but go up on top of the mountain and talk to them, but don't, don't, definitely don't go to a party with them. Um, you should be, these sinners should be quarantined uh, away from righteous people like themselves. And Matthew calls them, I love it again, calls them sinners, not because others are not, but because that's how the religious people saw them. Um, they included, uh, that group of people in the Gospels include prostitutes, tax collectors, people with diseases, people with deformities, um, who religious, religious people said were born that way because of the sin of their parents, that's what he would say. Um, that's what they would say. And so they, that's, that's that group of people. And the reason they're upset too is because to eat with someone in that culture um, was, to, was to welcome them into your life, was to invite them into be friends with you. It was to connect with them on a personal basis. And Jesus did, all of, did this all the time. I love it. One commentator said, if you read the Gospels, it's almost as if Jesus, every time you see him, he's either, he's either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. <laughs> like, he's just always around food. He got himself killed for who he ate with, that's what one, one guy said. He did. He got killed for eating with people like this. Um, listen to Matthew eleven nineteen. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, <laughs> and they say, all right, that's the religious people, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Luke 5.33, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours, Jesus, all yours do is eat and drink. <laughs> that's what, that's what they, all we do is see you guys is eating and drinking all the time. You don't do anything. You don't pray. You don't do anything. Like, you're a worthless Messiah and your followers are worthless followers. I love this, though. Matthew gives us a great example to follow. Find a way to connect your friends who don't know Jesus to friends who do know Jesus. And a meal, again, is a perfect opportunity because your relationship to those people starts to change, right? You have a meal with somebody, the, the kind of marginalized don't feel as marginalized anymore. They feel included. The lonely don't feel as lonely anymore, right? They feel like they belong. Um, also, you're forced to be real over consistent meals all the time, right? You can fake it at church, right? You can, you can fake it at Bible study, fake it, community groups, Sunday school, whatever. You can fake it for a little bit because you just think, all right, I got to put my show on here, put my face on for this little bit, bit of time. But if you consistently eat with someone, the real you, right, comes out. <laughs> the real you, you're, you're, with, you're with them in those environments. Just think about what it did to Bilbo Baggins, right? I always I love that show, that movie. The Hobbit, you remember Bilbo Baggins? Totally upset about the people coming in um, into his pad, right? The, the, the guy's dwarves come in, they kind of, he's all upset. They're eating all of his food. But by the end of the movie, right, or the book, depending on which one you, you read or watched there, um, you know, they become good friends, right? They become good friends over, over meals. And I love even though the, the word companion is actually from a Latin word that means both together and bread, to break bread together is what the word companion or friend even means. Tim Chester is a pastor over in um, England. He said, hospitality involves welcoming, creating space, listening, paying attention, and providing Meals slow things down. 
Some of us don't like that. We like to get things done. But meals force you to be people-oriented instead of task-oriented. Sharing a meal is not the only way to build relationships, but it's number one on the list. Right? It's a great way to do so. So if you love people, eat with them. Right? You're going to eat anyway, so why not do it with other people? Uh, if you love people, you want to see them come and know Jesus, then invite them to eat with you. Invite them to eat with others who know Jesus with you. Take new people out to church you meet. Take them out to eat. Take them to your house to eat. Right? Uh, if you're wondering, uh, so what kind of people should I be eating with? Jesus gives, a, gives us a, a, an answer for that in verse 12. And Jesus says, I want you to eat with sick people. <laughs> you're like, well, hold on. We're in like quarantine stuff, like you know, all this virus stuff. What are you talking about? Listen, verse 12. When Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus responds to the self-righteous kind of religious people, and he says he came for sinners. What does that mean? He came for those who deemed themselves unworthy. He came for those who knew they were broken, right? They, they owned up to it. Uh, he didn't come for those who thought they had it all together and wanted a little bit of improvement on their life. That's not what he came for. That was the religious leaders, and they felt themselves to be clean. They felt they were good. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, who can say I've made my heart pure, I'm clean from my sin, right? But they did. That's what they thought. Proverbs 30, verse 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, that's the religious people, but are not washed of their filth, right? They, they look good. And Jesus, later on in Matthew, he goes after them and calls them like whitewashed tombs <laughs> full of dead men's bones. They look really good on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. So religious leaders didn't get why Jesus was here. They reasoned that if Jesus was coming, think about it, if, they were, if he was coming to eliminate the Romans and set up his kingdom, shouldn't he be surrounding himself with, like, battle strategists, military people? Shouldn't he be buddy-buddy with us religious people because we, we had some political clout, you know? We, we helped in the elections and stuff, and we could really persuade to get the right people on board for Jesus. And why wasn't he surrounding with us? Why wasn't he eating meals with us? But Jesus had fishermen and tax collectors with him. He was eating with these people um, Jesus was supposed to crush the sinful and support the righteous. Instead, Jesus supported the sinners and crushed the self-righteous. This is the exact opposite of what they thought. And Jesus had choices to make, just like you and I. He had 24 hours, just like us. He, he, and he chose to go to this party instead of hanging out with the religious crowd because that's where the sick people were, quote-unquote, meaning the, they, those who knew they were broken. As a spiritual doctor, Jesus went to the spiritually sick because they knew they were sick. And ironically, he went to them so that they would, they would, as it were, catch him, not him catch something from them, which is what the religious people thought that he would do. That's how you're going to come to Christ, you who are apart from him, right? You've you, you got you to continue to be around the gospel. You've got to continue to be around him. Keep coming to church. Keep reading your Bible. Keep asking questions in that capacity. I love how C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, put it this way. He says, good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm... You must stand near a fire. If you want to be wet, you must get near water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize, which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spreading up at the very center of reality. If you get close to it, the spray will wet you. If you're not, you will remain dry. What's he saying? He's saying you've got to find, you got to continue to find a way to be around God, as it were. Be around his people, be around the church, be around the Bible. Continue, if you have all these questions you don't know, continue to come, continue to be around to hear. And I love how Jesus tells them, hey, you guys need to go and learn, right? You need to go and learn. Um, 
They, they, they missed the point of Jesus' mission. They didn't understand his intervention. He didn't come to crush sinners. He came to save them. He didn't come to welcome the self-righteous. He came to call those guys to repent. He didn't come to throw down Rome. He came to have himself throw down for the sins of mankind. My friends, Jesus had nothing to say to the self-righteous religious people because they were spiritually deaf. They, they couldn't hear him. They couldn't hear him at all. Um, they, until you come to the end of yourself, you won't ever hear Jesus either. You'll hear some words, and you may spot off some Bible verses. You may memorize some scripture or whatever. You may be familiar with the Bible, but until you come to the end of yourself, you'll never actually hear Jesus. Have you heard Jesus? Have you heard the gospel? Have you received the gospel? Until you see and feel that. So you feel yourself at the cross, feel yourself, as it were, raising the cross. You'll, you'll never understand that. Uh, Rembrandt, uh, you may be familiar with him, was a, a Dutch painter back in the 17th century. He was one of the, the most popular um, and gifted artists our world has ever known. And some of his most, most famous works uh, include The Night Watch, and many, and many of his also include a lot of uh, biblical stories, a lot of gospel stories. A lot of those painters back then would do those. Some of his famous ones was The Return of the Prodigal, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, if you're familiar with, the, with this artwork. But one of my favorites is one called Raising the Cross, um, and it depicts the crucifixion of Jesus. You see up on the screen, and in the painting, you'll notice that um, in the painting, you'll notice that Jesus is being holstered up, right on the cross. He's being lifted up on the cross, and there's a lot of people kind of in the background looking and seeing what's going on. You notice a soldier that's nearby there lifting the cross. But if you notice at the very center where the light is, you see the light in the very middle of the painting is on a guy that looks kind of strange. He's got a painter's hat on. You know who that is? That's Rembrandt. If you look closely, and you may not see it, be able to see it on the screen there, if you look closely, he's got both of his arms wrapped around the bottom of that cross. He's the one doing the heavy lifting. He's the one lifting up the cross more than anybody else is. You see what he was saying? He said, that, I'm there. I'm, I'm the most responsible. I'm at the base of that cross. I'm doing the heavy lifting. I'm the one responsible for putting Jesus on this cross. That's why he painted himself into that picture. And that's what I mean by that, my friends. You, you need to actually come to the end of yourself and see yourself there. It wasn't them. It wasn't my neighbor, my friend, my parents, my kids, my whatever, you know, that, that are the sinners. It's me, right? It's me. I stand in that need. Have you seen yourself at the cross? Have you felt the weight of that before? As we go to communion, you'll see there's a cup uh, in front on the pews there. Uh, there's bread and juice inside. And we do that as a church, and if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to, be, to partake in that. But I'm going to leave this painting up there, because it sounds good just to kind of reflect on that. But I want you to think about owning your own sin, okay? Um, and especially in this capacity, as you sit there and reflect, and we're going to have some quiet time. If you're new with us, it may be a little awkward for you, but it's just to be quiet for a few minutes. Um, and it's just an opportunity for you to talk to God. If you're like going, I don't even know who God is, that's okay. Just, just sit quietly, it's fine. Um, but we, we, we're going to take some time to reflect and respond to God and the reality of, even as Christians, even though we are already forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future, we continue to be honest with God. And actually, the more we get the gospel, the more transparent and honest we become. And so we would take that opportunity to reflect on, on what Jesus did for us by living the life we couldn't live and then dying to death we should have died to save us and realizing that we're at the base of that cross. We're lifting it. And as you reflect on the, the kind of the point of the whole passage, this whole idea of intervention, Maybe begin to ask God, God, what is that? Who's that one person? Who's that person that I need to I need to just get more serious about engaging? Right? Maybe I need to take him out to a meal. Maybe I need to find ways. Maybe I don't know anybody. If you don't confess that to God, honestly, they got out. 
I don't know anybody that doesn't know Christ. Help me, help me find somebody. Bring them in my life. Give me ideas of how I can engage people for the sake of the gospel so that I can get on mission with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be together. together. Thank you for, um, for your word. I love the, the stories here. Even, even Matthew, who wrote this gospel, giving us his own personal story, Lord, about how he came to know you. And Lord, um, as we go to communion, we, we stop to reflect and think on um, owning this. God, it's, so, it's such a tendency for, for us who are around the church a lot to think of ourselves, think of others as being the sinners, just like these religious people did, and forgetting just to turn the finger right back at ourselves and owning it ourselves and saying we are the sinners. We're the ones who are in need. Um, we need the grace of God. And so I pray, God, you would help us to remember, um, remember that, remember owning that, what you did for us. Um, and God, turn us around. Give us, give us engagement with our community. Help us to serve, love, and care for people in need. Help us to build bridges for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of people and for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.